welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, the only show that takes a look at the obstacles and opportunities open to small to mid-sized enterprises that manufacture here in America. Brought to you by All Metals and Forge Group, with your hosts, Tim Grady and Lou Wise. Welcome, everyone, to Manufacturing Talk Radio. I'm here with my co-host, Lou Wise. And before we get to our guest, who's top ball president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing today, I want to find out from Lou what's going on in the news, what's uh, hot at the moment, Lou, and how are you? What's hot, in the, what's hot is the fact that the weather is hot, and I'm looking forward to October. So, uh, <laughs> and, and, we're still, and we're still in August. Uh, anyhow, I mean, it's been really a hot summer, and I'm and thoroughly fed up with listening to CNN and Fox and all the rest of those guys with regards to our presidential cycle this year. All that being said, um, just wanted to talk about uh, our last week's show, which was really quite incredible, um, and actually is the first of a three-part series. We're talking about manufacturers compete with prison slave labor allow, uh, allowed under the 13th Amendment to the Constitution. Uh, we had uh, discussed this uh, phenomena that's going on, that's uh, based on the uh, 13th Amendment, which was signed in 1865, allowing prisons to produce goods and services for the government. Uh, and it's now gotten to a point where they're now manufacturing all kinds of products. Uh, Unicor, who is the number one uh, company uh, that runs uh, the private uh, prisons, um, has been making all kinds of products that fills a 42-page catalog and takes away all these jobs from uh, our manufacturing sector in the U.S. And um, it's, it's good that we're training our uh, prison, um, uh, prisoners to new skills and so on. Uh, that being said, we shouldn't be taking away jobs from U.S. manufacturers. We did have a guest, Marty Spooner from Allstate Office Interior, who tells us the story of his victimization of this system. He's actually lost about $9 million in gross revenues to the state, New Jersey State version of Unicor called DEPCOR. It's quite a story, and I strongly suggest that uh, you all tune in to the August 23rd show. And we'll be advising when uh, episode two and three will be aired. Uh, it is quite a story and um, uh, quite shocking in many regards. Uh, regarding the, new, the news, um, we have a couple of items. Uh, GE in Wisconsin, who produces energy-efficient reciprocating engines, is moving to Canada. So we lose... 330 U.S. jobs, we lose taxes, and of their gross revenues, 80% of them, 80% of the product they make was exported from the United States. So now it'll be exported from Canada. So we lose those export revenues. And there's a side story to that that we've reported on in the past, and that has to do with XM Bank. And that was the reason why GE moved to uh, Canada, because they can't get the 
funding from XM Bank, who loans money to industry, and uh, matter of fact, is the only government agency that actually makes a profit. And uh, it seems as though that uh, Mr. Richard Ashley, senator from Alabama, is the one who's holding up the reauthorization of XM Bank. There's a cap of $10 million, and he won't let it go through by putting in a full quorum at the bank because he is against corporate cronyism. That's an interesting uh, term that they use, uh, and uh, we'll see how that plays out. This has been going on now since... uh, Uh, last year, last uh, August, I believe. So it's a one-year anniversary where we are losing jobs as a result of one man. Um, Did you have anything you'd like to add to that? I know you're right on top of it. Well, you and I are both passionate on this issue. We have uh, 313 people in the House who voted for, on a bipartisan basis, the reauthorization of the XM Bank, Then it goes to the Senate. Uh, It is the chairman of the Senate Banking Committee, who is Richard Shelby, who is holding it up because he personally objects to it. So we have a senator who has hijacked American democracy. I'm sorry, there's no other way to put it. His personal uh, beliefs are irrelevant to the fact that 313 House members voted to reauthorize the bank. So whether he likes it or dislikes it is irrelevant. It's what America wants. And I am sorry to say that both houses of Congress have a difficult time executing what America wants. So we're going to stay on the subject and keep pushing on it uh, until we see what happens with XM Bank, good, bad, or indifferent. And we'll keep reporting on it to everyone. Yeah, we're going to do that. I'd like to report that uh, next week's show on uh, September 6th, we're going to have Brad Holcomb with the Institute of Supply Management. He's our regular with us. And uh, Dr. Chris Keel from the Armada Corporate Intelligence uh, Organization and also uh, economist with FMA, Fabricators and Machinists Association, who's also a regular with us. And they're going to report on the numbers as we uh, believe they are for the past month. So I look forward to that, and I suggest you all tune into it and see where we're, which way we're heading, up, down, or sideways. Tim? Thanks, Lou. We're going to be talking with now Scott Paul, who is president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing. It happens to be a partnership that was established in 2007 by some of America's leading manufacturers and the United Steelworkers Union. Mr. Paul and AAM have worked to make American manufacturing a top-of-the-mind issue for voters and our national leaders through effective advocacy, innovative research, and the savvy public relations strategy He has testified before seven committees of the House and Senate, and he frequently appears on television news shows and blogs at Huffington Post, CNBC, and Industry Week. We now have him on Manufacturing Talk Radio. Scott, welcome to the show. Lou, Tim, great to be with you. Well, thank you for joining us. We certainly appreciate you being on the show with us, and 
there are a couple of topics we talked about yesterday, some old, some new. Um, I, I want to touch on some of the old ones because I'm not sure they actually happened, Scott. You know, you wrote an article uh, uh, almost a year and a half ago, which is sadly still relevant today, uh, on what Congress, a divided Congress, a White House can do to boost manufacturing. And you had eight points in that. Scott, have we made any progress? Is anything moving forward? Yeah, well, there's one conclusion we can draw, which is Congress has not paid any attention whatsoever to my advice. So, um, uh, but but in you know, I will say that, and we can th- run through the list. It was things that could boost manufacturing and the economy. Uh, right. Investing in our infrastructure, uh, making sure we're buying American in procurement, uh, doing manufacturing-centered tax reform. Uh, penalizing China for currency manipulation and other unfair trade practices, uh, opening markets overseas and negotiating what would be a fair Trans-Pacific Partnership deal, uh, fostering innovation, uh, investing in skills and training, uh, and investing in our our domestic uh, energy infrastructure uh, and and, – Extraction across the across the board, and so yeah. When you look at that whole list, there, there's not a whole lot that's been done. There was an infrastructure bill passed. It's 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 basically just enough to get us through the next couple of years, but not really enough to start any major rebuilding of America. Uh, and and the rest has largely uh, been uh, dropped in the large heap of partisanship and just the fact that this you know this Congress. Uh, has not had an, uh, an ambitious um, agenda, uh, and it's managed to accomplish that. So, Scott, let me ask you a question. These uh, these eight points of yours, they seem like a no-brainer, and I think my question is probably a no-brainer, but I'd like to hear your comments for our audience's sake. Why do you think our Congress is so backward? Why are they not doing their jobs? It's a, it's it's a good question, and you, you know clearly we live in the manufacturing world. Uh, I, I think to us it's critically important. We probably all personally care about some other issues going on, uh, but what you know I I just there, there's so much hyper partisanship um, today where you know you had a situation where the president you know, puts forward a Supreme Court nominee and right off the bat. You know the the Senate Majority Leader says we're not even going to consider it, so forget it. And it's like, you know, that's never really been the dynamic, even when Republicans and Democrats have had differences. Uh, and it was, uh, but but it's just accelerated uh, and expanded to a degree that it makes difficult to get almost anything done. And and then I will just say that there's a a large number of members of Congress who were elected in 2010 and as part of kind of the Tea Party uh, influx into Washington who believe in a, um, uh, you know, in, in a Congress, honestly, that doesn't do much. And uh, that, 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 you know, you have to understand you have to you pay for things that you want to get done, that you want to invest in, like our schools and our roads and what have you, and you know, for, for I think for for some of these these 
members who were, uh, you know, very ideologically focused. Um, uh, it, it, that's that's been hard for them to grasp. And I will say, this isn't just me saying this. I mean, you have broad areas of agreement on, for instance, immigration or infrastructure, where both, you know, you would find the labor movement and, you know, the Chamber of Commerce and NAM all agreeing in general uh, that something needs to be done, uh, but but the Congress uh, couldn't put its foot, you know, its, its, its feet in front of each other and, and even make any progress whatsoever on those issues. For what it's worth, here's my opinion. They just don't want the other guy to look good. And that that's goes both ways for both sides. So that's an unfortunate situation that we have today in Congress. Yeah, I, think, I think that's right, and I, I just wanted to, 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 to make a point about that because it, it didn't have to be that way even when you look back to the Republican Congress of the 1990s led by Newt Gingrich, who was a, you know, a very fiery anti-Clinton conservative, and then you had Bill Clinton who uh, was – you know, did a lot of things, but was controversial in his own right. Uh, they had incredible differences. Incredible differences. I mean, one tried to impeach the other and get them booted out of government. Yet they also worked together on issues, and the minimum wage was increased. They got welfare reform done. Um, they they did they did a lot of other things, and so, some of which I agreed with, some of which I didn't agree with. Uh, but it was all. But they managed to get things done. And it was, you know, I, I, I think it's just stunning to me that that even in that period of partisanship, um, things got done, and today, you know, we're we're mostly uh, at a standstill. And and as a result, you know, we are in, you know, in in, in a lot of different measures falling behind. Uh, and and I think it's we've missed a lot of opportunities to to make progress. We clearly are falling behind, Scott. Uh, one of the subjects that we talked with you about uh, in a kind of a pre-show call that was also in your your talking points, which is investing in our workers, uh, we have talked about a skills gap for a couple of years, and we're beginning to see some discussion that the skills gap, as it has been framed, may not in fact exist. And you made an interesting point yesterday I'd like you to share with our listeners about what we should be calling it or should be talking about it. Yes, I I think it's worth noting that, you know, for small and mid-sized businesses, finding a specialized employee, particularly if you're in an area that doesn't have a large labor pool, yeah, that can be a challenge. And so I'm good, I, I'm not going to dismiss it and, and, and say that you know it, it, that, that employers who say it's impossible to find a skilled worker, uh, you know th- there are there are some cases in which that's true, but uh, there's no kind of macro evidence through the, uh, the 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 Department of Labor statistics or through through what rising wages uh, that there's any sort of a crisis. I, I think we have to be aware that there are demographic shifts that mean. There should be a lot of job openings over the next decade, and, and certainly we we want a pipeline uh, for talent to be established. Uh, but it is uh, there, there's a couple of points that I think get overlooked in this debate. First of all, kids, believe it or not, are pretty rational actors when it comes to jobs. Uh, and if they don't see a lot of jobs in manufacturing, if they see barriers like 
I need to go get training. I'm going to have to pay for that. If I have a family, I have to figure out a way to support them while I get this training. Um, you know, that we, we need to acknowledge that that's, that's a real issue. And so when you have manufacturers wondering why a kid would rather work at McDonald's, then at the factory, uh, given all the potential benefits and what have you, uh, you know, you have to consider it from the from the kids' perspective as well, and try to try to meet meet them halfway on that. I, I think just using the term skills gap itself is something that is self-defeating. Uh, it implies that there's a real problem, a real challenge, and I, I don't know that most people have the view of manufacturing that it's, yeah, I don't want to go into it because it's dangerous or I don't want to go into it because it's dirty work. I think, you know, if there's a, if you have a general familiarity with manufacturing today, you know, that's not the case, but you could have still have a real question about whether the job's going to be there. Um, even if the employee is working hard, put, putting his or her heart and soul into it, uh, that the factory could, you know, could get wiped out by global competition or in a recession, or their jobs could be shipped overseas uh, by 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 some companies. Uh, and it's it's a fact of life. And until the manufacturing community comes to terms with that and and, and is not blaming the kids or even the parents, uh, you know, we're, we're not going to make a lot of progress on this issue and the way in which we can get kids engaged in this. I'd rather inspire them. Uh, you know, I, I like the, the approaches that inspire kids. Like, you can be part of building the vehicles of the future that are going to drive themselves. You can be part of, of amazing advances in additive manufacturing, 3D printing, nanotechnology. You know, you can develop new materials that we haven't even imagined today. You can build things that are going to be on uh, manned missions to Mars and perhaps even a colony there someday, rather than come help me fill the skills gap. You know, it's just a, uh, I, I think kids kids rightfully want some inspiration, uh, and it's incumbent on all of us, I think, to provide them with that. One of the things that Tim and I have reported on with regards to the skill gap issue and, and the, the kids uh, going to college when they may not want to, they're really guided by their parents because the parents want to, to be able to state that their child has a college degree and run up a $100,000, $200,000 debt and then not be able to get a job. So a lot of this, I believe, uh, the parents have a, a responsibility to help guide them, as you pointed out, that there are great jobs and great technologies that the kids could be getting involved with today and make a lot of money. I, know, I think that's right. Yeah. Lou, I was just going to say, I think that's right because we, we, we talked we talked about this a bit, a, a bit uh, you know, off the program, which is that, you know, right. you have you, you had a generation of leaders who said that to achieve the American dream, um, you needed a four-year college degree. And now we have a lot of kids who've piled up debt, uh, who have a job that they're overqualified for, uh, who are living with their parents. And their parents may want to second-guess the advice that they gave them uh, when they could be out there you know, doing a vocation where they can work with their, with their hands, their hearts, and their heads, 
uh, and, and be making a little cash and be more independent because there are opportunities out there. So I, I think we've reached, hopefully, peak like it's only the four-year college degree uh, is going to help you achieve the American dream. And, and we get back to some balance uh, where, where, it, where it, in fact, uh, should be, and that's going to create a number of opportunities, I think, for uh, for folks who who want to uh, enter 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 the workforce, who will need some training beyond high school, but but don't necessarily need the tens of thousands of dollars of debt uh, and that and that four year degree. And a four four year degree, a four year degree today is not quite as meaningful as a four year degree was ten fifteen years ago. It's only maybe a little bit higher level than a high school degree today. You need to go to a specialty school. You need to go to medical school, law school. You you wind up going for six, seven years. Yeah, you absolutely yeah, do. And we have a surplus of lawyers today. I think they're, the, the <laughs> latest figure I saw was that uh, – there were 66,000 more uh, folks who had graduated from law degree than we had a than there was a need for uh, professionals uh, who had a law degree, and so it's it's a mismatch. I mean that is a, that is a classic mismatch. Um, and you know, again, I think that uh, you know once uh, once there are more job openings in manufacturing. The community college technical systems will respond, uh, but it's hard to build something from the ground up. I mean, if you've lost that shop class at the high school, you know, it's especially in today's age of education funding, it's really hard to get that back up and running. Uh, there, there's considerable barriers to that with with expenses and you know focusing on the testing and all of that. And so I, I don't want to pretend like it's easy, uh, but I also think that. Generally, our labor markets do work, uh, and when uh, you know it's kind of like field of dreams. If you build it, they will come. You know, and and it will it'll be rough around the edges, uh, but we'll get there. Scott, Scott, one of the subjects. Scott, one of the uh, subjects that uh, we hear in the news quite frequently, and it's coming up in the presidential election, and. Candidate Clinton has changed her tune, and Trump has been anti the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Frankly, I don't see the evil in it. Can you share with us uh, maybe the uh, organization's view or your view on TPP and where it's headed and why everybody sees it as so bad? Yeah, well, uh, Lou and Tim, I know this is a controversial issue, and, you know, there are some manufacturers and businesses who support it. There are some who oppose it. Um, uh, the TPP, interestingly, has generated more op- opposition from manufacturers than you normally see. Ford Motors, one of the largest companies in the United States, is, is opposed to it as it currently stands. New Balance, you know, America's last athletic footwear maker, uh, opposes it, uh, and, and there, there, there's a number of others uh, as well. And so, even you know, industry is is somewhat divided in this. Uh, but look, I I think trade agreements sometimes represent opportunities. I mean, you want to open markets overseas, you want to look for those export opportunities, uh, and 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 I think those are those are all very good, and we need to do more of that. But when you look at what not got negotiated in the Trans-Pacific Partnership, I think there are reasons to, to be concerned. Um, 
you know, we, we, currency manipulation sounds like a really esoteric issue, but it's something that can be a real barrier when you're talking about exports and imports. Um, and uh, Japan uh, has, has, has manipulated its currency to gain a trade advantage uh, many times over the last couple of decades. Uh, and the TPP, while saying, yeah, we need to focus on this somewhat, it doesn't provide any penalties for uh, for a, a country like Japan if it were to manipulate its currency. And I think that's one of the reasons why Ford uh, Motors has a, has, a, has a major concern about it. Uh, when you look at the uh, something called rules of origin, um, and this is very technical, but I think it's important, where you know if if a if a product What's zero tariff treatment coming into the United States from a Trans-Pacific Partnership country, uh, you know, say uh, Malaysia, uh, only about 35 to 40 percent of that product actually has to be manufactured in Malaysia. The rest could be done in China. And so uh, when you do that, it's like it's like a backdoor free trade benefit for China when we don't have that same access to the Chinese market. And again, this was negotiated into the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Um, and I don't think that's a, necessarily a, a winning proposition for manufacturers in the United States. Uh, state-owned enterprises, this is when a country basically controls or owns a company. We, we don't really have that in the United States uh, outside, I think, of the very narrow examples that you cited with, like, prison industries or, uh, you know, Amtrak, which doesn't manufacture anything, but it, you know, provides rail service. Uh, but, but there are other countries like Vietnam, which is a potential Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, country, that, that does still own a lot of its industry. And, again, the challenge is – uh, that government can subsidize the industry uh, and then compete against private sector firms in the United States. They don't have a profit motive. They don't necessarily need to have a, have a market price, uh, and and they can come in and, and undercut U.S. producers. And under the Trans-Pacific Partnership, there's not a whole lot you can do about that. Uh, and so when you look at the substance of the agreement, it could have been negotiated uh, a lot better for the United States, uh, which is why I think you had, you know, Ted Cruz and Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders, who were the last four standing, all kind of saying, well, I, I, I don't like this, uh, the, the way it's negotiated. And you don't have to believe me about this. I mean, the, the studies that have been done, the official study done by the government, which supports the Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, predicted that it would cost some manufacturing jobs uh, and raise the manufacturing trade deficit. Uh, a, a think tank called the Peterson Institute for International Economics, which supports the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which supports free trade across the board, its study also predicts that the agreement would cost jobs in manufacturing. It says the service sector will gain jobs, but manufacturing will lose jobs. And so when you're presented with all of those facts, you know, my conclusion is, yeah, we could have done a better job on this. And you know, rather than having it shoved down the throats of Congress, do we want to uh, – you know, should we, should we renegotiate this, take our time, get it right? And certainly it would make sense to take our time and get it right. Um, we don't necessarily apparently do that well in a, in a great many things. Uh, Scott, I know that uh, one of the other areas that you have addressed in the past is uh, you know, opening foreign markets um, 
and doing that in such a way that a uh, trade agreement or a, uh, a trade uh, interchange doesn't mean a trade war. You make an interesting point about that. Could you share it with our audience? Yeah, I think that uh, this is this is really important, and I I think it, it it makes sense to look at the case of China because China is the largest manufacturer in the world. It's probably the country with which we have the most trade disputes uh, right now, just based on its scale, but also based on its governmental practices and. Look, I'll just tell you my belief is that you know it's easy in these presidential campaigns, uh, Lou and Tim, and, and and to hear pundits say, "Oh, there's going to be a trade war if we do this or if we do that." Uh, and obviously, we have to be very careful about our approach with tariffs uh, and other things. Uh, but but we when we enter into trade agreements with countries. Uh, we do drop tariffs, but we also insist on a set of rules, and those rules are you can't cheat. You know, there's fundamentally, and so if you're dumping products into our market, if your government is subsidizing those products, if you're keeping our products out, we have the right, we have the right to take action, uh, to, uh, to to both to to uh, both uh, deter against bad behavior, uh, and essentially seek compensation for the injury that's been done to our economy, and you generally do that through uh, some temporary specific tariffs, uh, and it's been that way for decades. Uh, we haven't had a trade war with China. There have been hundreds of cases that have been filed this year, a lot in the steel sector, but in some other sectors as well. Uh, and uh, they can, you know, they, they may not necessarily turn an industry around in the United States, but they can create some breathing space uh, for, for that industry. Uh, but there's a uh, I, I think, unfortunately, when you get to like the presidential level of things and, and people start talking about trade policy, it becomes little more than like, are you for free free trade or protectionism? Are you for a trade war or for for open markets? And the the reality, which is what you know real manufacturers face, is that there's there's a lot of in between space uh, in there where we where we need to go. Um, I do think that it's important to. Uh, deal with our trade issues with China. I, I know that both uh, Hillary Clinton and, and you know Trump have talked about these issues, uh, uh, but I think a lot more needs to get done because I think there has has been some real damage done to our economy uh, by uh, by a lot of these Chinese imports that have displaced you know thousands thousands of manufacturing operations and uh, who were otherwise very competitive. Um, but just were driven out of business because of, uh, you know, not, not because they, they couldn't get the job done, but the Chinese government uh, had a policy, and we, we, didn't, we didn't back our manufacturers up. Yeah, I think that's probably true. We've been speaking with Scott Paul, who is president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing, and we will be back with him after we take a short commercial break for uh, some uh, sponsor messages here. We'll be right back. How do you keep your business humming? 
Where do you go when you're looking for quality suppliers of new equipment? Components, MRO supplies, repair services. Manufacturing Talk Radio will be right back. All Metals and Forge Group is an ISO 9001 AS and EN 9100 manufacturer of open die forgings and seamless rolled rings in alloy, carbon, stainless and tool steels, aluminum, copper, titanium, and nickel alloys. Visit us at steelforge.com or call 800-600-9290. Welcome back to Manufacturing Talk Radio. We're back with Scott Paul, who's president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing. Scott, one of the things I promised we would give you an opportunity to do, uh, actually there's a part A and part B. Part A is to tell our listening audience what the Alliance for American Manufacturing is and what it does, and part B is to give them the website address so they can find you guys. Go ahead, Paul. Be happy to do that. Uh, Tim and and thank you again for for having me on. Um, uh, Alliance for American Manufacturing is a nonprofit, uh, nonpartisan uh, partnership between the Steelworkers Union and several domestic manufacturers with whom they have a collective bargaining arrangement. Uh, established ten years ago, uh, with the idea that coming at issues together and not through a Democratic-Republican lens or uh, a business-side lens or a labor-side lens in particular, but where we can find common agreement, we can make a lot of progress, uh, and we can uh, promote uh, smart public policies that will uh, strengthen manufacturing and create uh, factory job opportunities in the United States. We, we fulfill our mission through outreach. We do a lot of uh, meetings, uh, town hall meetings, Keep It Made in America town hall meetings across the country. We've done almost 100 of these events over the last few years. We've pub published uh, research uh, on areas such as national security in manufacturing, uh, the importance of infrastructure investment in manufacturing, um, the importance of, of uh, procurement laws uh, and what they mean to manufacturers and fair trade policies. Uh, we've uh, edited and published books from, with experts from across the, pol uh, the, the political and philosophical uh, spectrums about manufacturing uh, in recent years, including one called Remaking America. Uh, we do advocacy on Capitol Hill. We have a grassroots network, and we have uh, about 150,000 online activists uh, who we engage when issues are before uh, the, the president of the Congress that are important to uh, our community, um, and so that's the, the uh, that, that, that's us in a night, nutshell. And we have obviously a, a presence online through our website, AmericanManufacturing.org, uh, and we're on Twitter and Facebook. We have over 50,000 Facebook followers, um, and we do we do a lot of engagement with our communities to make sure that they're up to date on what's happening in manufacturing news, uh, and also how they can be a part of the movement to help bring manufacturing jobs back to our country. Well, we certainly appreciate that information. We know our listeners will, too. Uh, Scott, one of the subjects that we hear a lot of in the news 
I'm not sure if it's just political bantering because nobody really knows how to fix hundreds of volumes of decades of tax code that have been uh, modified and tweaked and uh, made tangents of and corollaries to. But one of the points that you talk about is pushing tax reform that encourages manufacturing. Uh, I guess my part A question is, uh, is there anybody going to tackle tax reform? And, and part B is, how can we do it that it benefits manufacturers? Yeah, really good questions. So, you know, there is a uh, there, there's this idea, and and it sounds good because it's so simple that if we just cut the corporate tax rate, that everybody's going to be better off. Setting aside the question of how we uh, we offset the costs of of uh, cutting the tax rate, and and who those benefits will accrue. And I'm not talking about rich versus poor, anything like that. But I'm talking about our economic sectors. And so it turns out, and and every study will show this, that if you just do a straight cut of the corporate tax rate uh, down to a certain level, whether it's 25% or 20% or 15%, and, and assuming that you offset that in some way. The tax benefits that you're going to get rid of largely benefit manufacturing, uh, something called accelerated depreciation, which I know all of your manufacturing audience will know what that is if you invest in, in, in the capital equipment or machinery in your plants. It's a, it's a tax benefit that helps to offset that, or something called the, the domestic production uh, tax benefit, which is known as Section 199 of, of the tax code, which is for manufacturing activity in the United States. So you, so you would wash all of that away, likely, and, and for many manufacturers, it would probably just be a, you know, just just be a, a neutral position. You're not going to gain. You're not going to lose. Uh, but Wall Street or our retailers would uh, would extract extraordinary benefits from such a tax cut. And look, my view is this, and I'm a manufacturing guy. You know, if we're going to be cutting taxes, let's cut it for an industry that uh, has an outsized impact on our exports, that includes workers that generally have better pay than the rest of the private sector, especially for, for those folks who don't have a college degree, and we've been talking about that a little bit, that creates, you know, 90% of our country's patents that does two-thirds of our research and development, uh, that's critical to our national security, and that is in global competition every day, every day. Let's cut it for that sector. I mean, Wall Street seems to be doing fine. Uh, our retailers, they, they seem to be doing okay as well. Uh, but manufacturers, I mean, what happens in India or China or Japan or Mexico, you know, matters uh, to, to how competitive we can be here, so we need every advantage we could get. So my argument is that you can you can target tax relief towards the companies that need it uh, by increasing the tax deduction for accelerated depreciation or increasing the tax benefits in uh, of the manufacturer manufacturing production tax credit section 199 uh, or for investments that manufacturers making their workforce, uh, which are not really acknowledged now, in fact, that some shareholders penalize companies that do that. Um, so let's do that uh, ra rather than just seeing the big banks get, get another tax break. I'd rather see our Main Street manufacturers uh, get the benefits of any sort of tax reform.
I would certainly agree with that. And I just I just want to check because we had a little technical issue when we went to break. Lou, are you still with us? I am. Uh, I am, and I'm uh, quite absorbed uh, in what the topics that Scott is uh, addressing. Uh, the problem, of course, is and, uh, regarding the tax reform is who's going to be the one to stand up and do it? And I think it comes back to the same uh, issue that I presented before the break, and that was that nobody wants anybody to look good at the, at the risk of putting the, the country and the economy in a very bad, uh, bad place. And, and hopefully yeah. uh, hopefully the, uh, this election cycle uh, might straighten out some of this, uh, even though I, I think it's only wishful thinking. Uh, but, but it seems to be uh, the time to throw the, throw the bums out. And there is a lot of that thinking. Well, I would just say I think one way or another there's going to be a big change, Um, and it is a – and the question is, yeah, will the executive and the Congress be able to work with one another? Um, You know, tax reform is one of those things that if there's enough segments of the economy or America that get a benefit, look, it's something that you might be able to get done, but the the, the rub – is exactly what I just relayed to you is that you have some sectors, Wall Street, that are just for one type of tax reform, and you have others that are like kind of capital intensive manufacturers that probably have another need. And so it's figuring out how do you satisfy all of those constituencies to get something good done for the for the for the common good. I think it's possible uh, to do. Um, but I again, I think one, you're right. One of the impediments is can these folks work with each other uh, and set aside the fact that yeah, they'd be you know they 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 they'd be helping each other on this when it when it turns out that might actually benefit our economy, create some jobs here. You know, it seems almost simple. Uh, you know, ideology uh, aside. Uh, in the old days, in the 50s and 60s, they'd have their poker games and pizza parties and go down to the bowling alley, and they would all put aside all of their differences and just be good human beings to one another. That doesn't seem to be uh, what's in the script at this point. And uh, I think some some of what has to happen, and you pointed it out, that there's going to be change. And... Uh, who knows which way that change is going to go, but it can't continue the way that, the way it's going now. It's, it's, it seems, it's, it's almost as if, uh, and I don't know who said this first, but all great, all great empires have failed ultimately. And we're, we're on that slippery slope. Yeah, I, well, I think we are. There's always been a, uh, you know, I, I, I I'm, I'm kind of with, the folks that say you don't want to bet against America uh, because I am an optimist, but but something, and I just wanted to raise this because I think it's important from a manufacturing perspective and from a politics perspective, and, and I don't know if, if you saw this, but within the last couple of months, uh, a, an economist at MIT, David Otter is his name, he's done a lot of work on the impact of China trade on manufacturing, and he's been able to pinpoint 
the effects geographically and by by industry to so to kind of show which counties have been hardest hit by by Chinese imports over the last uh, 16 years or so. But one of the conclusions that he and his colleagues make made is that that communities that have, where manufacturing has been hollowed out, uh, and, and you know you and I both know a number of these, you know. From a political perspective, it's actually polarized them. So if they were majority-minority community, they elected more progressive members of Congress. If they were majority-white communities, they elected Tea Party members of Congress, and they threw kind of the, 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 the middle, the compromisers, out. Uh, and I don't mean compromise is a bad word here. I mean it as a, as a, as a good one, but willing to work with each other. And so that – Interestingly, and it's in its own way, uh, the 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 deindustrialization of part of our country has contributed to the polarization of our politics. Uh, that that you know is the present situation that we're dealing with and discussing. And so, yet another reason to want to invest in manufacturing and make sure that we're making smart decisions. Uh, that will allow this sector to have a future because it is important in a lot of ways we understand and probably still some ways we, we don't understand yet. Scott, I want to go back to a earlier subject, uh, and actually there's two, but let me touch on this one first. And in a nod to your constituency, which is the United Steelworkers Union, and our friends in the AFL-CIO, there's a lot of infrastructure in this country that needs to be rebuilt, uh, and it's trillions of dollars to do it, not millions of dollars to do it. And you brought up a very interesting point when we talked uh, in a pre-show call about the steel that should be going into things requiring steel in America. I'd like you to share that with our audience as well. Yeah, well, I think this is a really important point because, you know, when you get a new road, a new bridge, um, Everybody can see the hard hats out there working on it. Those are the construction jobs. That's obviously good. Uh, those are those are good paying jobs. Uh, most of those folks don't have a college degree, uh, and and it's a you know it's, it's an important sector of our economy. But beyond that, you think about the materials that go into our infrastructure, like the steel in our bridges. And unfortunately, we've had some governors that have been made some really uh, what they would what I would call penny wise, pound foolish decisions, and they've decided to try to get some super cheap steel from China to build their bridges. Uh, governor Schwarzenegger, when he was the governor of California, made this decision when California was rebuilding the Bay Bridge. And uh, he got this promise from a, from a Chinese company that they could do the job, they could get it done on time, and they could save him hundreds of millions of dollars. Well, it, it, it turned out that this company, which is owned by the Chinese government, uh, had never built a bridge before, um, had a lot of problem welding, and so the California Department of Transportation had to send 50 or 100 engineers over and house them in China for the better part of half a year uh, to get this thing done. It was delivered years late, over budget, didn't save California uh, taxpayers a dime, and, you know, it, it, it came at the cost of probably 3,000 fabrication jobs in the United States on the West Coast. Uh, that, that were, and people needed this work, and they could, they could have done it. Uh, so buying American when we're rebuilding our infrastructure 
is really important. And, you know, I think that Ronald Reagan understood this. He he favored Buy America laws for uh, buying uh, parts for our transit systems in the United States. And it goes these, – these laws go all the way back through Dwight Eisenhower to Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And I, I think that it may sound very quaint, I know, but when we're investing tax dollars, American workers should have the first shot. I don't think they'll let anybody down. Uh, and so we hope that our uh, leaders from both parties will remember that uh, as we're investing tax dollars in rebuilding our country. I would absolutely agree with the point. And the other subject that Lou and I are now doing a series on, which is prison labor. I mean, the prison labor situation was obviously started with good intent, uh, both to save taxpayer money and to educate some of the prisoners or give them skill sets that they didn't have when they uh, were incarcerated. Unfortunately, it's now morphed into competing with American manufacturers for contracts. You made a very clever point yesterday. Why don't we... Uh, use those people to compete with overseas uh, products. Can you share that as well? I thought that was quite right. Well, I, I do think, you know, the, the general goal of providing vocational skills to our incarcerated individuals is good because it helps uh, reintegrate them into society and vocation and work uh, when, they, when they've completed their, uh, their, their term. And uh, and I, that's much better than having having a, a lot of folks sitting around idle. At the same time, you know, if they're putting small businesses out of work and, and others, that's that's not a good development. And so, uh, why not focus the the industry, the vocation, on segments of the economy that have largely been outsourced to China? Um, and so, uh, you know, and there's a number that they could do. So rather than uh, competing directly against American small businesses, uh, we're, we're displacing imports, uh, and, and we're not doing it really at any cost to consumers or, or anybody else. And so it just seemed to me to be kind of a common-sense solution to all of this. Uh, I'll, I'll be candid and admit that I haven't uh, – you know, that we haven't explored this from a policy perspective, but I think that for folks who are concerned about prison industries, um, it's definitely uh, an approach worth considering. Well, one of the things that we experienced when we were talking with Mickey Spooner, who uh, has a business in New Jersey, is that, in fact, some of the ways that DEPCOR operates and gets contracts is a direct hurt to the Carpenters Union in New Jersey. And I was uh, surprised to learn that uh, DEPCOR does things a little under the radar so that the union hall doesn't catch wind of it. And so there's union jobs that are not uh, made available. Uh, there's factory jobs that are displaced or wiped out. So we're going to continue to explore that conversation because we think it's important for listeners, particularly in manufacturing, to understand what uh, the U.S. government and many state governments are doing in terms of uh, that labor force. Uh, but, you know, another issue that you brought up is, you know, fostering innovation. And Lou and I have talked about uh, some of this having to do with uh, intellectual property, but uh, also in, in conversations where America's great at inventing things, and then sometimes we take that great invention and we give it to, to a foreign country to produce, we move on to the next invention. Not necessarily a good thing to do. 
Um, what's your sense of where we're going with fostering innovation? Well, we've it's always been one of our country's strengths, um, and uh, it's it's been one of our strengths for a couple of centuries now, and I, th I think it will continue to be. You see the amazing uh, technology that comes out not only of Silicon Valley, but still places like Detroit and uh, New England and, and really all, all, all over the country. It's, it's extraordinary. But as you indicate, too often these days, instead of uh, commercializing and producing these inventions um, in the United States, gone for this, this, uh, this, this offshore model of production. Um, and that has had consequences. It's, it's actually made it really hard for those who are interested in electric vehicles to establish the high-capacity, high-efficiency uh, battery industry in the United States because all of that, all of that, even though the technology originated in the United States, all of it migrated to Asia when production migrated there. And so it's, it's, it's hard to claw that back. Um, and I think that one way... Uh, to do this is through public-private partnerships, uh, and the Obama administration has uh, begun some of these manufacturing institutes, and I will point out that this is one of the rare areas where Congress has given its bipartisan assent to some funding for these institutes. Not enough, but, but some. Um, uh, but, but my hope is that this model will help to uh, incubate some businesses, you know, clusters of businesses uh, to take advantage of this technology, whether it's uh, additive manufacturing or uh, wide band gap semiconductor production or uh, advanced metals or composites. I mean, there's, there's a lot of these institutes that are getting up and running. Um, but it is a, uh, you know, I, I think one of the, one, one of the debates, and, and, and we can, we can I, I think, relate it to almost everybody, is like, you know, why can't we make an iPhone uh, in the United States of America? And, and I, you know, part of it, honestly, is that a lot of the supply chains in Asia right now, I think we can address that. Uh, but you know, fundamentally, more companies need to take another look at all of the costs of doing businesses, business overseas um, and, and hopefully make a bet on the American economy, that the stability that we have, uh, that you, you won't have as much concern about shipping costs or exchange rates or loss of intellectual property uh, or any of these other factors, uh, if, if you think about wanting to also make things in the United States, I, I don't think venture capital or Silicon Valley has that attitude yet, but um, uh, I know that, that, that some of their pioneers did. Andy Grove, for instance, had a lot of regrets about outsourcing work and, and really uh, had a belief in, in American manufacturing uh, at, 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 towards the end of his career. Um, but but there's, I think we need to follow that, and, and we'll have a brighter future for, for manufacturing in our nation. I'd like to just address one point, going back a little bit, but I think it, it, uh, it's, it's to your point as well. I think the average uh, hourly rate in this country is somewhere between 15 and $18 an hour. And the, the big incentive, of course, is uh, the 3 to $4 an hour uh, offshore uh, and, and without benefits and without health care and so on and so forth. So the, the number is even bigger. Uh, and 
the movement of reshoring back to the United States, which is happening to some degree um, in some cases, and, and I'm going to refer back to the prison uh, story again, is that not all of the jobs that are coming back to this country are for the uh, patriotic uh, purposes uh, that we're all talking about. Uh, but it is because the prison salaries are between 16 cents and a dollar and a quarter an hour. So part of the reason for coming back is that they don't want to pay the three, four dollars an hour in China. They would rather pay 16 cents to a dollar and a quarter uh, in the prison system. And uh, that's unfortunate because uh, obviously uh, that's hurting the manufacturers uh, here in the U.S. And, frankly, some of the skill sets that they're being taught in prisons are technologies that don't exist outside of the prisons anymore. Um, for example, textiles. When they get out of prison, they're going to have to go to Malaysia to get a job. So I, I just wanted to make that one point before we uh, come to an, a close uh, on the show. And um, I'd also like to like you to give us uh, your URL address and uh, an email address, uh, Scott, if, if you choose, so that people can be in touch with your organization. Yeah, I, I'd be happy to do that. I, I want to, again, thank you, Lou uh, and Tim, for having me on. I think it's a great show. You, you bring a lot of energy and enthusiasm to the topic, a lot of know-how, and you've had a, a really diverse array of, of guests, so congratulations on the show. Glad that we could contribute to it. Um, AmericanManufacturing.org uh, is, is the website for the Alliance for American Manufacturing. Again, that's AmericanManufacturing.org, and I'm happy to hear from your listeners uh, on Twitter. Uh, they can reach me at ScottPaulAAM. We're on email. Uh, it's spaul at aamfg.org. And happy to hear from you or your listeners anytime. We'd be pleased to partner and work together. And we'd love to have you back as uh, things progress and change and alter, or if you have any new uh, topics that you want to get out to our audience, we're more than willing and more than happy to have you back on the show. Tim? Well, I, I appreciate that. It's 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 been great spending uh, the the last hour with you. I, I know we we covered a lot of ground, but it's a uh, it's it's a big industry with a lot of challenges and opportunities. Um, and encourage you to keep up the good work. And uh, I'll look forward to uh, joining the show again. Thank Thanks, you very much. We've been talking with Scott Paul, who's president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing. We encourage you to go to their website and learn a little bit more about it. And we look forward to having Scott on the show in the near future on other subjects as they may come up. Lou, anything else before we wrap here? No, just uh, tune in uh, next week and listen to Brad Holcomb, our regular, and Dr. Chris Keel uh, at mfgtalkradio.com. Thanks, everyone, for being with us today. We look forward to having you with us next Tuesday. And check out our website for all of our previous shows and the upcoming shows in the very near future. That takes care of Manufacturing Talk Radio today. Thanks for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. You can hear our next broadcast each Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at mfgtalkradio.com.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.